Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think, any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's judgment is revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Now will you join me in prayer, a prayer of remembrance for the men and women who have sacrificed their lives on our behalf and for the victims this week in Texas. Our Lord and our God, your goodness loved us into this world and your mercies never fail us throughout this life. You are the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. Be with the many today and tomorrow who will grieve a deep loss. For we have been taught honor, duty, selflessness, and sacrifices through the men and women who have died on our behalf. Lord, thank you that their sacrifice has secured our freedom. Lord, we also pray to you as the just judge over all creation that you reveal your presence to the families who have lost so much. Grant those families steadfast faith to believe their children have been taken into your safekeeping of eternal love. Reveal your unyielding love to that whole community of Uvalde and when you empower the church to speak the word of truth to a community in desperate need of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick, for a very powerful prayer this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open to Romans chapter 2. We will be in that passage and I just want to say welcome back, Daniel and Kristen. So great to have our worship pastors back. Don't you think you can do a little bit better than that? <laughs> so great to hear your beautiful voices and guitar playing. I, for one, am very glad to have you back. But, uh, and great to see all of you. Awesome to see you. I love seeing you every single Sunday. Uh, you know, since the shooting at Columbine High School, which now seems like another lifetime, right? Uh, which was admittedly nothing less than a, a massacre, a horror. And since that time, over 550 children or teachers have lost their lives due to these kinds of shootings. The morning after last week's shooting, uh, that evening I had watched the footage of it, and I just cried my eyes out through the footage of it. My heart broke so much for those grieving parents, obviously, and for that community. But I decided I, I was not going to sit up all night and just watch the footage all night of it. Because you know how the news cycle is. They just want to ruminate. They just want to report on it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I decided I would not do that. And so when I woke up in the morning, I just checked a couple of my news apps expecting to see that story everywhere, expecting that would be every single story. And to my surprise, uh, I checked my Christian Post news app, and it was about 12 or 15 stories in. And then I went over and checked my Google news app, and again, it was about a dozen stories in. And I thought, how is that possible? How, my, how, how things have changed. Do you remember when Columbine happened and some of the other shootings that followed that? It felt like months of national mourning for that community. And now with this constant barrage of information, 
and the news cycle, and actually just the frequency of these kinds of events, we tend to get over them pretty fast, don't we? I mean, it's no indictment on us. We pray for the folks, but as a culture, we, we've become a little bit desensitized to it, I think. And maybe, maybe we, we're also less interested in these kinds of events because of our overuse of certain terms in our culture, like the word outrage. For sure, there are things to be outraged about, right? I mean, real outrage. Like this one was infuriating. There should be a righteous indignation in our hearts toward it. We should hate the evil that perpetrated this, not necessarily hate the young man because he has all kinds of things going on in his life. We should love him and pray for him, but hate that evil. And so there should be real, genuine, moral outrage. But unfortunately, we've overused that word. And if you overuse any word, any word that you overuse just becomes a clanging noise. It robs us of appropriate language to describe it when we really do need to use it. And if any term in our modern vernacular seems to have lost a bit of its oomph, a bit of its punch, it's this word outrage or moral outrage. The advent of social media has given rise to a never-ending display of selective and manufactured scandal. The appeal of these outrage mobs on Twitter is that if you join one and you successfully shut down a politician or a celebrity or a well-known person, if you shut them down, what's so intoxicating about that is that that just gives you a kind of social power. And that's a hard thing to say no to, right? And today, people just become easily triggered. You've all heard this word, probably used it, maybe. It just means to be socially activated with furor, with anger over celebrities who slap other celebrities on award shows for making distasteful jokes about their wives. Better be glad he didn't insult my wife like that. <laughs> or edgy comedians who tell transgender jokes on Netflix specials. We live in an age of extremes. Gone is civil discourse and a toleration for dissenting opinions, and in its place is an intolerant demand for conformity and uniformity for every idea, no matter how trivial or how trifling. Gone are constituencies. Oh, remember when we had those? Remember in the 90s when we used to love that phrase, affinity groups? Where did those go? Now, in place of constituencies and affinity groups, all we have are tribes who are constantly at war with other tribes. Because every belief they have, no matter how trivial, no matter how trifling, becomes a matter, a matter of orthodoxy, an article of faith, a core doctrine. And we must shut those heretics down. We must shut those haters down. And so outrage permeates our culture for everything. And despite all this, there are still plenty of issues that should leave us floored, aghast, like 60 million babies aborted. That's a generation of people. That's the same size as Generation X. That's an entire generation of people gone. We should be outraged that these people never got to take a breath or live a life or live in a home raised by parents 
there are still issues to be morally outraged about. And Paul spent the bulk of Romans chapter 1 telling us about those very things. From Romans 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 32, what he tries to do is paint this picture of idolatry run amok of this idolatrous system, this godless, atheistic system that results in this spiraling moral morass. And now he shockingly, surprisingly, turns his attention to a different group of people starting in chapter two. He turns his attention to the moralist who with Paul would sit there with their arms crossed and go, that's right, Paul, get him. And they're the Greco-Roman moralists, the moralists who follow. Epictetus and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and those kinds of philosophers who teach a very high standard for the, for the Greeks and, and, and the Romans. Or maybe some of the Greeks and Romans, the, the thousands of them that have converted to the belief system and the moral system of Judaism because they were tired of the kind of stuff that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1. Or the Jewish moralists. The Jewish moralist who knows that if you dethrone God, if you de-God God and take him out of the picture, you don't have an objective source for moral values and duties and obligations. You don't. And so this is what leads to the spiraling death spiral of morality, of immorality in our culture. And so he turns to these folks and he says to them, hey, get off your horse. Don't get too uppity. He starts this section out by telling them in no uncertain terms, number one, that judging others is inexcusable. It's inexcusable. So here's a little secret. I'm going to tell you this. This is a mystery. I'm revealing it this morning, and you may want to write it down. But hypocritical, judgmental people are super annoying. I know that's profound. It's like profoundly simple and simply profound, but it is. It's true. And so if, if this is you, just put on your best poker face. You know how to do that anyway because you're good at it. You burnt. No. Uh, but listen, if, if, if you live your life as a hypocritical judge of everyone else around you, it's, it's irritating. It rubs others the wrong way. And Paul says it this way in verse 1. He says, therefore, so in light of the aforementioned, he says, every one of you who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. And so now in verse 1, he's changed his pronouns, right? What were his pronouns? They and them. He says, this is what they do. This is why they're like this, right? This is how they think. And the moralist is, you could just picture the moralist sitting back going, that's right. And then Paul says, oh, what about you? He changes it to you and we, us. And there are two possible uses of this term crino or this term to judge in the New Testament. So let's talk about first what he doesn't mean, right? The word judge is used in a variety of ways in Scripture. So let's identify what Paul is not talking about, okay? He's not talking about good judgment. (laughs) I think we would all agree that discerning and wise decision-making is a value. Discerning and wise decision-making is a good thing. 
How many of you parents are praying for your teenage children or your children to grow up and make good and wise choices? So this is just good judgment. We all want this. Proverbs 31.9 says this, speak up, judge, and judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. You see someone who's oppressed, you see someone who is in need, judge rightly. Make a good, discerning, wise choice. And so God has given human beings this ability to judge or discriminate between a righteous act and an unrighteous one, to discern between fairness and unfairness, to discern between truth and error. Now, Paul has to do this with the Corinthians. He has to tell the Corinthians this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they are suing each other in open court. In courts in the first century, the way it was is they were just open, right? People could walk by and watch your court case, kind of like on, we do on TV today, right? Uh, with the whole, what are their names that are in court now? What's, whatever their names are. <laughs> I haven't watched the second of it, so I can't remember their names. But these famous people are suing each other, and that, that's the way it was in the first century. And so Christians now in the church are taking each other to court, in open court. And Paul says, ah, don't, please don't do that. You are doing irreparable harm to the reputation and the witness of God's church. Don't do that. You can judge these things internally. You can settle these issues as a matter of internal deliberation and judgment. And here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3. He says this. He says, or don't you know that the saints, that's you, will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters in this life? Now, what is he talking about here? I don't know. (laughs) All I know is in the new creation, when we are in our resurrected bodies and the world has been resurrected itself, Paul says you and I will have a judicial vocation. That will be our vocation. Part of it will be to judge our environment or to whatever. And he says if that's going to be your new creation vocation, don't you think right now you might have the ability to settle matters, settle disputes in-house? You do. Use good judgment. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 through 32, he turns it in on them personally. Every person, every Christian. He says if we were properly judging ourselves personally, we would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So the purpose of God bringing judgments into our lives, the purpose of us judging ourselves, is so that we will escape the final wrath. Understand, this word is used in a New Testament context, Old Testament and New Testament, encouraging us, commanding us, and commending us to have good, wise, discerning judgment. But here's how he's not using the word as hypocritical condemnation of others. Paul is not using this word as hypocritical condemnation of other people in their circumstances. He says, for when you judge another, how does he define it? You condemn yourself. So that's how he's using it. How he's using it is to say, when you judge, that is to say, when you sit in God's seat and you condemn another person, you are actually condemning yourself. Because you, the judge, do the same things. Now, by same things, he doesn't just mean the exact same things. He means the same kinds of things, which is what? Sin. Sin. 
<laughs> he says, before the bar, before the bench of God's justice, we are all sinners. Now, by the time we get to chapter 3, he's going to make it painfully clear. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard and are in need of his grace and his forgiveness. And so the essence of this type of judgment now is the condemnation that is reserved for God alone. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He said, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure that you use against others. So why do you look at the splinter, that little speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye, right? In your brother's eye. But then don't deal with the floor joist that's hanging out of yours, right? That's my translation. Or how can you say to your brother, first, hey, man, let me take that splinter out of your eye, that piece of sawdust, and look, the whole time there is a floor joist hanging out of yours. Hypocrite. You, you hypocritical judge. First take the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, he does not say you are not in a position to help your brother. He says, you should help your brother. You should help people reform. You should help people along the way. Help them. It's called disciple-making. He said, but before you do it, you get before Jesus' cross and you drag your sins scratching and yowling into the light of the cross. And as you confess your sins before a holy God and he washes you clean, now you can see fit to go to someone else and help them with their speck, right? Because God is the judge. And so God taught me this principle years ago. I've shared this story with some of you. I'll share it with those of you who are new as well. Uh, God taught me this story years ago uh, when I lived in Post Falls, Idaho, uh, in North Idaho, and uh, I was there. And so when I first moved there, I was moving from a big city. In fact, I would say I was moving from big city life, just living in several big cities, to one of the smallest towns, probably the smallest town I'd ever moved to. And Post Falls was a really kind of a uh, I-90 bedroom community to Coeur d'Alene in Spokane. It was in between there. And, and I, remember when I, I, remember, I remember when I first moved there, in the first year, I got like 10 speeding tickets <laughs> because I just wasn't used to driving 25 or 35 miles an hour everywhere. And so my insurance dropped me, and this was before insurance.com. so I had to scramble and find some obscure insurance. And I remember I had been doing, for a while, I had been doing really good. I mean, really fun, obeying the law. <laughs> it's called obeying the law. And, uh, and I remember I was in front of Super One Foods, and I was going somewhere, maybe to an appointment, and a cop pulled me over, and I was like, no way. And so he gets out of the car, he walks over to my window, and he says, uh, sir, do you, do you know why I stopped you today? I said, I don't know why. I would like for you to tell me, because I've been doing pretty good. And he said, well, I stopped you because you were doing 50 in a 35. And I was like, well, that sounds like a good reason to stop somebody. <laughs> but I was mad, dude. I mean, I was, I was seething angry at that cop. And he's like, he said, well, sir, you have one of two options. You can come to a class right down here at the police station that we hold every Monday night. It's a four-hour class. And uh, you'll, you'll be relieved of your ticket duties. Or I can write you a ticket right here. I said, I'll take the class. And so Monday comes around, and I'm seething with anger because I know I don't deserve this. And I go to the class, and I'm two minutes late, and I get there two minutes late. I walk in the door, and I'm very abrasive 
with the lady who was behind the counter. She was a cop. And I said, where's the class at? She said, oh, right there. I was like, fine. And I go into the class. I sit down. I was the last person there. I was number 19. I sat in the very last chair available. The class is full of sinners. Right? And I sat there with my arms folded, and I was just radiating my disgust for being there, and I started looking around to all that riffraff in that room, thinking, they deserve to be here. I don't. And then the cop got up, and he did something very peculiar. He said, we're going to do two things tonight. He said, first, he goes, I want you to introduce yourself. We're going to go around the room. I want you to introduce yourself, tell us your name, and then tell us what you're in for. Right? And then, and then thirdly, tell us whether you think you deserve it or not. And the first three persons, for sure, man, they had done something horrible. This one kid, I got to tell you, this 19-year-old kid was there because he was text messaging with one hand and trying to drive with the other, and he swerved across four lanes of traffic and almost swiped the cop car who was just parked there. And I sat there and went, that guy deserves to be here. That's horrible. <laughs> and about three people in, four people in, five people in, every person to a person confessed what they had done and admitted that they deserved to be there. So about, by about number 10, my cold, frozen heart began to thaw. And it grew three sizes that day. <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, some people were actually in tears over what they had done. I was like, oh, that's so sad. And then they got to me, and I was like, hi, my name is Jeff, and uh, I was doing 50 in the 35, and I totally deserve to be here, man. You know, and I was like, I love you guys, man. <laughs> my heart had just broken. And that day, I joined the Fellowship of the Post Falls Traffic Violators. Because <laughs> I confessed my sin. And for sure, there were people in that room, listen, there were people in that room who really did do some pretty dangerous stuff. Right? What I did was not so dangerous, but listen, we all deserve to be in that room. And that's what confession is. Confession is when you and I come to a point where we say, I deserve to be in this room. No matter how good you think you are, the truth of the matter is, is that we have all sinned before a holy, righteous God, and we have transgressed his law. And we deserve to be before the bar of his judgment. So hypocrisy now is when I demand something of someone else that I don't demand of myself. It's when I self-righteously put on this facade, this veneer of righteousness, but internally I am full, I am rotten to the core with sin and lust and desire and transgression. And yet I portray myself to be this holier-than-thou person. And, <laughs> and Paul says, no, you're not going to get away with this. All of you moralists out there who think you're better than others, who have an uppity attitude toward those sinful lawbreakers that we talked about in Romans chapter 1, you're in the same room. And number two, judging others is inexcusable because God is the judge of every person's destiny. God alone now has the right, the prerogative to sit in that seat and judge a person's destiny. As individuals, as societies, as corporate entities, as the church, we can indeed, we must practice wise discrimination. At the heart of wise judgment is good discrimination. 
is being able to discriminate between a bad choice and a good choice, between an error and truth. We must have a bias for the good. We must have a bias for truth. We must have a bias for that which is holy and righteous, as Daniel read earlier from Philippians, that which is lovely and pure and praiseworthy. And so we have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. We stand before him unrighteous and imperfect, and he alone is judge. So why is God alone qualified to be the judge? Well, he says it right here. He says, because God's judgments are infallible. Like, God's judgment of me is just infallible. What makes it infallible? What makes it impeccable beyond scrutiny? Let's say for the sake of argument that you and I live in a culture, a human culture that has developed the fairest, most just justice system in the history of the world. Now, you may not believe that, but let's just imagine that that's true. Let's just imagine that it's true that living in a culture, one of the very few cultures that says you're innocent until proven guilty is a good thing. Okay, so hypothetically, let's just say that's true. Well, that system is still full of corruption because it's still full of corrupt sinners, isn't it? And the evidence of this are are all of the wrongful convictions that have taken place over the years. Did you know that uh, experts estimate that between 2 and 10% on any given year of convictions are wrongful. Since 1989, 2,600 people have been exonerated. Now, relatively speaking, that's pretty low, isn't it? That's a pretty low number. But still, that's a lot of people going to the slammer who don't deserve to be there. I think you would agree. Wrongful conviction statistics show that the main reasons... Uh, many people end up behind bars wrongfully is misidentification or official misconduct, false testimony, perjury, false accusation, false confession, or a coerced confession. Now, you and I would pray for a more perfect union in this regard, wouldn't we? We would say, God, please make our justice system more perfect as we grow, as we continue. That would be an appropriate prayer. But here's why you never ever have to worry about a wrongful conviction when it comes to God because God's knowledge is infallible. There's nothing external to God withholding some knowledge from him that turns out with more information he changes his mind. Nope. God is what we call omniscient, which means that God knows all and only truth propositions. There is nothing that is true that God does not know is true. His knowledge about everything is infallible. There, are, there is no information that is being withheld from him. He holds no false beliefs. And so God knows exactly what a person has done and what they deserve. And so his judgments are inscrutable. They're impeccable and they're infallible. And God's judgment is also inescapable, he says. He says, now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth And then in verse 3, he says, so do you not think that if you presume to sit in that seat and judge other people, you, the sinner, that you will escape God's judgment? Now, the Bible teaches that all of the nations, every person who has ever lived in the history of the world, is going to stand before the bar of God's justice. Every person is going to give an account for the life that has been lived in the body. Every person. Paul is having this discussion with the philosophers in Mars Hill. 
this place called Mars Hill, and he's having a philosophical debate with them. And he quotes their poets, that's true. Uh, he, he cites the tomb to the unknown God, that's true. He's just trying to build a bridge here. He's trying to have a conversation. But then he goes on to tell them, actually, everything you believe is exactly wrong. <laughs> so much for being seeker sensitive. He says in chapter 17, verse 31, he says this. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we are the image-bearing children of God, He said, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design or skill. Now, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. What a friendly way to put things. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn and believe in Jesus. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Because he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, that is Jesus, from the dead. Understand, God has appointed a day in which every human being who has ever lived or will ever live is going to stand before the bench and he is going to call them to account for their lives. And Jesus himself taught this about himself. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. What is the will of my Father in heaven? We're going to find out. He says, many will come to me on that day, and they will say, Adonai, Adonai, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will tell them plainly, clearly, no ambiguity. I never knew you. Get away from me, evildoer. Get away from me, evildoer. Look at what Jesus is saying there. What is the will of the Father? What is the will of God? That we believe in the one whom he has sent. The will of the Father is for you and I to come into a personal, life-changing relationship with Jesus, his only son. And there are going to be people, literally on the day of judgment, who stand before the bar of Jesus justice. And he says, why should I let you into the kingdom? And they're going to pull out a long list, a long resume of do-gooding, right? Moralists who say, I've done, the scale should balance in my direction because I've done these things. And Jesus will say, did you know me? Did you believe in me? Did you embrace me? Well, no, I didn't do any of that. I didn't believe in the cross, but I did a lot of good stuff in your name. No. Jesus said, that's evil doing. And so we live in a culture today of evildoers. Say it again. We live in a culture today of evildoers who think that they're actually doing good. And one of the evil things that they do is scapegoating anyone who appears remotely worse than they are. The fact is, is that we have a guilt problem in our selves. And that guilt has to be discharged. People, it does not matter what atheists have told you you are. It only matters what you actually are. And what you actually are is a person who is a sinner before a holy God made in his image. And you carry a tremendous, uncarryable weight of guilt. And so the instinct of the human being is to constantly try to scapegoat that guilt onto others. This is what all these tribal factions out there in the world are trying to do. That's why they're always at war. Everybody has a tailor-made, personalized, customized system of, of morality. 
And now we're constantly standing in condemnation and judgment on the people who do not believe exactly the way we believe on all of these little particulars. And so we're constantly trying to scapegoat our sin onto others, these sacrificial lambs to transfer the weight of our personal guilt that we feel to these goats and these lambs. But I have to tell you, I'm here to tell you, you are a diseased, defiled lamb. The reason why we need the spotless lamb of God is because you are unholy. I am unholy. Anyone else that you would try to transfer that guilt to and saddle with that guilt, they're defiled. They can't carry it. And this is the reason why we need God's holy son hanging on a cross. We live in the most judgmental society in our history, and it's because we've dethroned God and declared ourselves the new gods who make up the new morality. And in doing so, we, we just exist in this moral, social hell where everybody is trying to turn everyone else into their sacrificial lamb. And the key, of course, is coming to God's lamb, isn't it? Number three, God judges hypocritical moralism, well, here's the shocker, as a rejection of his grace and kindness. So the person who is moral says, well, I don't need Christ. I'm a moral person. I live a moral life. I agree with Paul. This stuff in Romans chapter 1 is wrong, or I have my own list of stuff that I think is wrong, right? And Paul says, listen, to become a hypocritical moralist when you're a sinner just like them, is actually rejecting the kindness and the grace of Almighty God. I want you to think for one second, just stop and think about what you despise. What is it? I mean, what do you really, really loathe? Romans chapter 2, verse 4, this is the word that he uses. He says, or do you despise the riches of his kindness Restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you kindly to repentance, which means to receive Christ with the open and empty hands of faith. And so Paul is here stressing the goodness expressed in his kind intention to call out to us, to patiently wait for us, to call us home, to repent. I learned the definition of the word despise when I was back graduating in Virginia a few weeks ago. I decided to take my older boys... Uh, Tyler, who is 21, and Hayden, who is almost 19 now, and I decided to take them back to Virginia, and I wanted them to go to my graduation. Uh, I finished my PhD, and I was graduating, and I was really excited about that. They were there with me, and I wanted to do that for two reasons. One, because I wanted to give them a, a vision of finishing well, because in my mind, finishing well is just running the race marked out for us. This is the race that God put before me. This is the race that God marked out for me. And I believe it's just faithfulness to finish it. And I wanted to give them a vision of finishing. And I did that. But I also wanted to give them context. I wanted them to know that the Jeff, the dad that you know today, this is where he came from. And it will be quite shocking to you. And so they did. We went back and we drove all over Virginia. We drove all over my county, my homeland, right? And so I needed my boys to just see the world from which I came. I needed them to see the house that built me, to see the family that shaped my values and really my personality and why I'm, I have this 
funky, quirky, weird sense of humor that they've never seen in their other family, these North Idaho Germans. <laughs> Boy, did they get a taste of Southern. Holy smokes, those kids. But there was an unintended consequence, a third goal that was a shadow goal, a shadow mission that I didn't know. I didn't have it for myself, but God had it for me. Something I didn't anticipate confronting. I did not foresee that I would confront something buried deep in my soul, which was my contempt for that place. I have unconsciously hated all that Civil War stuff. Growing up around that stuff, you probably love it. If you're a Civil War enthusiast, good for you. But I grew up around it all the time, and I despised it. You like going to the Smithsonian Museum? Good for you. I hated it. Like growing up, I was like, why do I want to go look at a bunch of museums full of old stuff that used to belong to dead people? That's how I thought. And so here I am doing the very things that I used to do, but now I'm doing it with my sons, and all of a sudden I can see them really enjoying themselves. They loved it. They loved all of it. They said this was the funnest thing we've ever done. It was so fun for them to see it with their own eyes. And then I began to see it through their eyes. And I fell in love with it again too. It was the most unintended consequence. In the rural county where I spent my childhood, the place that toughened my skin and put iron in my soul, the roads where I I lost a sister and a father to horrific car accidents. I never wanted to see any of that stuff ever, ever again. And as I saw it afresh through their new eyes, I began to appreciate it and then I began to love it again. And just like that, I fell in love with the old brick houses and the rolling green hills and the thick overgrown trees bent over those winding country roads And just like that, all of my contempt just evaporated and transformed into new memories. And what a gift. I got on the plane and I cried just a little bit and I was glad that they fell asleep immediately because I just kind of shed a few tears because I thought, what a privilege it was to grow up here and to fight here and to learn here and to love here and suffer here and burn part of the forest down here. Even the pain shaped me. It was in that moment I looked back on that life and that world and I realized that even my pain made me, prepared me to be a caregiver because that's what my profession is. A shepherd, a pastor. It transferred a value of empathy for the hurting people around me. And it reminds me of a timeless story about a man who experienced utter contempt for his heritage and with it lifelong regret. After hunting all day long, all day, he came up short, and he returned back to camp, and there was his little brother, his little twin brother, Yaakov. Esau's belly was hungry. He had caught nothing all day, and then they're sitting there, and there's this cauldron, there's this pot of stew, and he comes over to it, and you can see Yaakov, you can see Jacob just kind of trying to waft it over into his direction. Doesn't that smell good? And yes, the aroma of that stew comes wafting up into his nostrils and his growling stomach makes him make a deal that he should have never made. He says, man, can I have a bowl of stew? 
And Jacob says, yeah, you can have a bowl of stew if I can have your entire birthright. (laughs) What a mischievous little cat. And his growling stomach, he's listening to his stomach, and he says, okay, fine. You can have my entire inheritance. Just give me that stew. And that's exactly what he does. And he loses it all. He doesn't just lose his inheritance. He loses that Abrahamic promise to bless the world through him, through a seed, through a son. Here it is. Genesis 25, 34 captures the moment. It says, then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, and got up and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. How did he despise it? What form did this withering contempt for his heritage take? He exchanged it for the immediate gratification of satisfying his hunger in the moment. He threw the riches of his inheritance away for a bowl of warm pottage. And you know, at the end of the day, the self-righteous, sanctimonious moralist in me who routinely condemns others for not measuring up, is really just standing in the place of God, exercising the judgment that belongs to God alone, and he's damning other people when he himself is just guilty as sin. And Paul says that kind of thinking is despising the heritage. It's despising the gift. It's despising the legacy of Christ's blood shed on a cross. And when we despise the gift of his grace... We exchange it, that inheritance, for a fleeting moment to be the judge, to be the condemner of someone else. And verse 5, hold on to your hats. He says, because of your hardened and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Folks, this passage is alarming. Look at it. He says, you may think that the people I just described in Romans chapter 1, 18 and following, you may think that they're the worst kind of condemned sinners you you can imagine. But listen, to sit in God's chair and judge and condemn others as if you are God is also worthy of his wrath and his judgment. I'm going to call the worship team back up, and we're going to prepare to take communion this morning. Ushers, if you would come forward and get ready. And this is really why we celebrate every month this symbolic meal. Not because we believe we, have, we are somehow ingesting the actual blood or the actual body of Jesus. That's just magical thinking. And the New Testament doesn't teach magical thinking. This is a symbolic meal. And what the symbolism of these elements, what they represent is they represent to us the price that was paid for us. And they tell us two things, the extent to which God and his son are willing to go to rescue us from this hopeless estate, this hopeless moralism or sin, flaunting it openly, proudly. But it also reveals just how the depth of our depravity, that as a human race, we would condemn the most innocent who ever lived, the most innocent among us. It is a powerful, powerful call. It is a powerful invitation to come to the water of life, come to the bread of life, come drink freely. And what Jesus says in Luke 22, 17 through 20, 
Jesus took the cup and after it, giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from from now on, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to them and he said, "This, this represents my body, which was smashed and broken for you. Do this to commemorate me. Do this to memorialize what I have done for you. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out. It's spilled for you, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that that brings us peace was upon him, and by his stripes, by the lash of the whip on his back, you and I are healed forever. Amen? There's much to celebrate in this meal today, but will you take a few minutes and just turn the spotlight in on yourself? Get off that chair. (laughs) Step down from the bench and sit as the accused and hear Paul's words to you, understanding just how much you've been forgiven of today. And let the Holy Spirit turn the spotlights of the truth in on your heart and search your heart and confess your sins today. Let's do that together, shall we? All right, we're gonna sing a song. If you, if you need to pray and you can't sing the song, do that. If the words of the song are your prayer to God to help you, do that. And then Daniel will close us out.